Hello and welcome once again to Learning Digital Photography. I'm your host Jason Anderson and you are listening to episode number 47. On this week's show we got a lot of great stuff to talk about. we got some photo news to share with you. We've got the listener questions and answers. And this week a conversation with Tom Hogarty, Senior Product Manager from Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. Got a lot of great things that we talked about with him including the Adobe development, where the Adobe came from, where uh, Lightroom is going from here, and some of the more unknown features that may not have been addressed as much in the mainstream media thus far. All that's coming up right after this, so don't go away. Particular photography news item that I thought was interesting was an update to the Flickr Getty deal. The folks over at Flickr had an initial partnership with Getty, which is a powerhouse licensing agency where you can license images from them. And it's just a big, it's a huge repository. And there was a partnership that was developed where Getty representatives would cherry pick Flickr photos and uh, photographers that they liked and these could then be licensed through Getty Imaging so photographers would be chosen by Getty. Uh, Later Flickr members could then offer their own candidates for evaluation by Getty for licensing so instead of Getty going out and saying I want this photo and that photo then it's up to the photographer to say yes or no. The second phase of it was where Flickr members could say hey here's an image that I would like to license through Getty and now The newest added feature is that there's a request to license. So it's basically saying to the world, this image is available for licensing. If you're interested, contact Getty, and they'll act as the intermediary for you to purchase this photo. So it's kind of an interesting little development. I'll post a link over to the details of it over on uh, CNET News, where I picked this up. Uh, This was a couple days ago. And it's just an interesting trend in how photography is being licensed and how it's being utilized in the mainstream media. A lot of uh, crazy developments going on here lately where the cost of stock photography has dropped precipitously and you see just a lot of people that are clamoring for uh, any kind of revenue from this source and the fact that this move is uh, coming is not that big of a surprise in the grand scheme of things but it is probably going to contribute to the decreasing valuation of images on the whole and I'm not sure this is a great thing for photography but tell me what you think let me know what you think over in the comments on the blog or you can write to me via email and share your thoughts on Flickr licensing and the request to license that they now have added. Like I said, I'll throw a link to that over the show notes as well so you can take a gander at that and chime in with your thoughts on that subject. The second news item that came up of a photography note was uh, something from Winston Churchill. Uh, This uh, came out I think middle of last week, sometime around last week. I'll go ahead and post a link to this as well. There was a, a photo a photo of Winston Churchill that was hanging above a museum and someone photoshopped out the cigar and it's becomes this whole you know topic of this of discussion and debate you know should we be changing history and taking out things that we find unseemly or things that we don't like or you know what you know things that are bad for us stuff like that or is this 
rewriting history? Is this like an, an anti-smoking coalition that's trying to rewrite history to say, no, there wasn't a cigar there. It was, we don't smoke. We're a healthy, clean society. So it's an interesting little dialogue. Um, I'll throw a link to this from the uh, uh, Daily Mail where I got it over from the UK. And it shows a picture both before and after so you can see the effect of it. It's kind of an interesting uh, take because the... Photoshopped image actually looks a little worse than the original image when I'm looking at it right now. It's like, if you're going to go to that degree to take out the cigar, you might have also wanted to take some time and uh, clean up some of the other aspects of it as well. So, I don't know, maybe he was correcting or she was correcting the wrong stuff. I don't know about the cigar being an important or relevant element of the photograph to omit. But just an interesting take. It was... Uh, uh, photography and Photoshop related, so I figured I'd throw that in the news as well. Our last bit for the photography news segment of the show is actually something that's more local. It's a little closer to home for me here. Uh, some folks in Longmont uh, tried to participate in this lit in this uh, Google project. Basically, what Google's doing is they're saying that they're going to launch uh, fiber uh, connections to every home in a residential area for small regional cities to show how they can, how this can be done cost effectively efficiently while still getting people really high speed internet access and they're doing it in a bunch of cities nationwide they basically thrown it out to the country to say you know pitch us and tell us why we should choose your city so there's one town about 30 miles north of here longmont uh, is the name of the town they wanted to go big so they decided to think about how they could get a really big picture and they looked upward so they had um, this plan to go to a parking lot over by a school and a whole bunch of people and they got a whole bunch of cards and they spelled out the word Longmont <laughs> and then they spelled out the word Google and then they put a big red heart in the middle where there's a whole bunch of people wearing red and they knew a certain satellite would be passing over their specific position at a certain time frame between like 1227 and 1229 or something like that and they said okay the time is coming the time is coming and everyone stood out and <laughs> spread their arms and did this whole thing and that actually captured a satellite image of the satellite looking down where you can see this from outer space so it's kind of a cool twist on things I doubt most people would really be able to get up that high to take a photo so the fact that this was accomplished was a very uh, clever way to think outside the box and because of that because of the fact that it was photography related and because it was kind of local and what I thought it was it'd be a cool thing to share here on the show just to show you that you really can think outside the box in big terms and even if it's something you can't personally do never be afraid to ask for help because sometimes that may be where the next great shot comes from so those are the three news bits for this week's show coming up right after the break we're going to have a great conversation with tom hogarty senior product manager for adobe photoshop lightroom all that's come and the listener questions and answers as well are coming up all that's coming up right after this so don't go away me on the 
show today is none other than Tom Hogarty, Senior Product Manager for Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. Tom was with us on the show last year, as you recall, when Adobe Lightroom 2 came out. And now, of course, with Lightroom 3 selling over Adobe's website, I thought it'd be a good idea to have Tom back on the show. Tom, thank you very much for coming in to Learning Digital Photography. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun talking to you, getting all the inside scoop on what's going on over at Adobe. Well, the first thing I wanted to start off with was um, talking, you know, because Lightroom 3 just came out, everyone was covering it. You know, as soon as it went live, I, I was on Twitter at the time, and I saw a whole bunch of people just start yelling, Lightroom 3 is out, Lightroom 3 is out. Everyone started downloading. Blogs went live with posts. You know, there were learning centers galore popping up. I saw over on the Lightroom blog... You had made a post about six or seven, something, something like that. There were, there were many different sites that put together like learning resource centers. Nat put one out, Adobe put one out, uh, myself and Carrie Garrison from Camera Dojo put one out. So it seems like it's been covered quite extensively. Yeah, and I actually have to keep going back and updating that that resource <laughs> link we, because you know there are sites in French and Portuguese and yeah. You know, Dutch and I just keep adding more Dutch. and more and all the books are starting to roll out on Amazon so uh, pretty pretty exciting time uh, for me. Yeah and, and like you said you know there's just so much going on it's got to be a, a rush to keep on top of all that and seeing everything that's out there though my big question is from the Adobe perspective anyway is there anything that you noticed hasn't really been covered because it seems like you know with all the sites that are out there and all the coverage that Lightroom 3 has gotten it's been pretty well discussed, and, and, I'm, and I'm wondering what, you know, what are we missing? What's the key? Like, if you had to pick a feature that hasn't gotten much attention, what would you think that feature would be? I, I hate to say it, but the um, the feature that has actually changed my workflow significantly is the ability to flop the crop uh, uh, orientation. Oh, the crop flop, that's right. Using the X key. Uh, yeah. We used to have to play this magical game, dragging the corner, waiting until it kind of you know, swap from horizontal to vertical, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I do I do quite a bit of cropping, so it, it was just, <laughs> that's been <laughs> weighing on me recently, and that, that's one of those things we did this cycle early on, we call uh, JDI features. Yeah, I was going to ask if that was a JDI <laughs> feature or if that was going to be a big feature. In that, your... That's a JDI, and so JDI. the whole category of JDI, uh, which we call the just do it uh, right. features, um, started with the After Effects team. Uh, at Adobe, and then the Photoshop team picked it up, and they did quite a few, and we decided it seems like a good idea. So we we had a whole list of these JDI features in uh, in the very first public beta. It was kind of like cleaning up all the um, all the stuff that we knew photographers wanted in that next release and getting them done early. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the smaller features, and uh, and so those haven't been revisited in some of the more recent uh, uh, tutorials covering Lightroom three. They like to go for the big marquee features. Right, uh, but I, I still think those are equally important. And I, I think a lot of those are also selling points for a lot of people that were using the beta. You know, when you came out with a three beta uh, initially, and then the Lightroom three beta two, people were saying, "Hey, I like the fact that this is in there now. This is really going to help a lot." You know, so aside from the huge stuff that's getting added, like you know the sharpness and the noise reduction, and you know all these fantastic features that are now evident, or you know just you know the enhanced watermarking, the tethered shooting, you know all these fantastic things. It's the little things, just 
crossing the T's and dotting the I's that have really improved a lot of people's workflows. And you're right, the crop one, I hadn't even thought of the crop one, so that's an excellent one to let people know. And it's the X key on the keyboard you said as the shortcut? Yep, when you have the crop tool activated, you just tap the X key, it'll uh, switch from vertical to horizontal, or that's vice versa. So cool, and it makes so much more sense these days. Now it's like, okay, let's switch that landscape. No, 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 let's leave it portrait. <laughs> so it's very yeah, cool feature. I don't know why I've been doing it more, more often recently. I guess I've been shooting a lot more with fixed focal length. Uh, lenses, and so it, it, I do a little bit more creative cropping in post. Oh, very cool, very cool. Well, one of the common questions that I've seen on uh, on uh, my blog and I've seen in various forums is um, which tools work best together, because with Lightroom 3 out now and with Creative Suite 5 out now, and I think Elements just got an update too, didn't they? Aren't, isn't Elements up there now? They're in like version 8 or version 9 now? Oh, yeah, Elements uh, 8 was released last fall. Yeah, yeah, so we've got a lot of pretty mature applications with, you know, version 8, version 3, Adobe Creative Suite is 5, so that's, what, version 17 now or something like that, <laughs> or version 20, whatever it is. A lot of people are asking what the best pairings are. Like, should they get Lightroom with with Photoshop? Should they get Lightroom with a Creative Suite? Should they get Elements with Lightroom? You know, what's the best way to go and I've always told people I don't like giving formulas because formulas just there's always going to be someone that says well that doesn't fit my workflow because of X Y and Z so well I think yeah, with that question in mind it might be helpful if you could like say here's what elements is meant to do here's what Lightroom is meant to do here's what Photoshop you know just kind of give people an idea of what each is meant and how they pair together kind of thing yeah absolutely um, so you, you mentioned how many versions of Photoshop we're on right now. We're, we're in Photoshop's 20th year. Uh, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary. So, oh, right. Uh, I knew about that. Photoshop is, is yeah, an absolute industry standard uh, for image image editing. Um, I mean, it's it's really geared uh, at the professional because uh, you basically have all those quality uh, controls. You have your full bit depth. You have uh, all the precision you could possibly need. Uh, and, you know, Photoshop has become you know, very popular because of that control and that power. Right. Um, but, of course, it was designed at a uh, point in time when digital photography wasn't that um, wasn't that big a deal. Uh, you know, 20 yeah. years ago... It was more graphic design, shooting, right? right? Well, it was a combination. It was graphic design. It was, uh, you know, to the extent the photographs were scanned onto a computer. Uh, mm. And, you know, so it, it developed as a, a very uh, powerful single-image editor. Okay. Uh, and I've explained this a couple times, you know, when you try and extend that, that single image editing experience uh, to, a, to a set of images, to an entire shoot, you end up having to do scripting and batch renaming and um, all these actions to apply a similar, uh, similar style to multiple images. Right. Uh, and so we, we were extending Photoshop in that direction, uh, but clearly it deserved an entirely new application uh, architecture and uh, user experience is what we call it. Right. Uh, so I, I'm going about this a, a bit a long way, kind of starting with the history of Photoshop. Now, um, Photoshop Elements is kind of a chip off the old Photoshop block. Uh, it's designed around that same uh, single image editing experience. Uh, it, it was, you know, we're on version 8 of Photoshop Elements, and so it inherits a, a lot of the, the, the tools that are in Photoshop but again, it's it's designed as that same architecture as the original Photoshop, and um, has some of those issues in dealing with a, a current digital photography workflow. Right. So, 
the way I see it is, you know, whenever someone asks me, you know, what to do first, I ask if they're a photographer, you know, they need a solution like Lightroom because it's the latest generation uh, product from Adobe for photographers. It has the absolute latest and greatest uh, technology for photographers in a really easy-to-use package. Yeah, because I think one of the taglines you guys had initially was Lightroom was designed and developed by photographers for photographers. So it really leaned towards the entire dedicated photography workflow where you didn't have any other uh, features that were going to be utilized like, you know, crop overlays and, you know, adding text here and doing this and that and all these advanced things that really are more in the realm of graphic design. So, yeah, that's excellent. And then the the other question that I got a lot on the blog was if people should be pairing Lightroom as uh, uh, an image managing solution with Elements or they should if they should be doing it with Photoshop. And my answer to that has always been, well, how much image editing do you do? Because if you do, you know, very specific edits to very specific images and you're doing that all day long, Photoshop, the full version, might be more appropriate for you, whereas Elements is more light retouching things that just can't be done inside a Lightroom. Is that an accurate answer? Would you want to expand on that a little more? Or? Yeah, I mean, be, because we've designed uh, Lightroom with both professional and kind of advanced amateur customers in mind, uh, we've we've built the integration uh, in Lightroom when you need to go beyond what, what editing capabilities are in Lightroom to work with Photoshop uh, CS4 or CS5. Um, it feels a little awkward to move uh, out of you know the this professional editing environment uh, and then pop into more of a consumer or a hobbyist editing environment. That's a little constrained in terms of bit depth oh, okay. and and, uh, and other tools. So it's um, I hadn't thought of the bit depth the bit depth issue. That's a good point. And what about uh, the color space that Elements works in? Because I know Lightroom works in Pro Photo color space, correct? Right, all of your adjustments are done in a pro photo space, and you know we we simplified it so you don't need to worry about. Right. Um, yeah, we, we'll just do everything automatically, but you know it's uh, it's really up to the photographer whatever they're more comfortable with. If it, if they're moving up from Elements, uh, they've been using that uh, in the past, and they add Lightroom to their their arsenal of uh, solutions. Then going back and forth between Photoshop and uh, with between Lightroom and Elements has certainly uh, been a popular workflow as well. Right, so it's not that you can't do it. It's just if you're in the professional grade, it's probably more recommended to go with the CS4, or CS5 application versus Elements if you're getting everything all at once. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good, uh, a good analogy. I, to me, it feels a bit like, um, you know, if you've if you've got a uh, um, going from a table saw to a Dremel or something like that. Yeah, I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to offend some some people, but you know. it's <laughs> <laughs> to me, Elements is kind of the kit lens of the photographic world. Right. Um, you right. know, and you've just upgraded to a full-frame sensor body, and uh, you, you probably wouldn't want to put that kit lens back on it. Uh, right. No, I think that's probably an appropriate analogy. I don't think anyone would get offended outside of Adobe. The Elements team, I don't know, might, might take issue with that. But We all sit next to each other, and <laughs> there you know, you it's go. a healthy rivalry. <laughs> Nothing so, wrong with a little healthy rivalry. <laughs> cool. Well, the last time we had talked, when we were talking about Lightroom 2, and that had come out, uh, you had mentioned that you had gotten through the beta testing and through the initial development that you foresaw the the probability of going through at least seven iterations of Lightroom, and we're now on version 3, so we're almost halfway there. 
But then with Lightroom 3, there was a beta and there was a beta 2. And I know there were uh, private invitation betas, like the ones that went through the NAPP. So you've probably gotten a lot more feedback at this point as far as features to add, things to change, what things people would like to do inside of Lightroom. Has that expanded your ultimate number of iterations or life cycles that you're going to be uh, looking at as far as application development goes? Yeah, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a time when we just say, oh, pencil's down, I think we've done it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because technology it's and always the industry yeah. continually evolves. Look how long you know, film manu manufacturers were able to innovate around uh, Chrome and, and color negative film and high yeah. ISO film. You know, te technology progressed and uh, they were able to do more and innovative things and, and I think we'll see the same thing on the digital side, uh, particularly with software. Yeah. There's a a common uh, term that's, that's bantered around called computational photography, uh, and that that's basically uh, using post-image capture uh, computing power to create a new image. So, uh, an HDR image could be considered computational photography, or a panorama that's stitched together. Uh, so, we're we're already seeing you know this this tight relationship between image capture and the post-processing software. Uh, so, I I think it opens up a ton of new possibilities, and it, you know. Absolutely, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just, I was just agreeing. <laughs> no, I uh, it makes me kind of excited because there's a going to be a whole generation of photographers who aren't um, who haven't learned photography with the typical constraints that, that film photographers think of. Right. Uh, so it's all I been a digital darkroom for them. That they haven't been inside a real darkroom where there's the film and the chemical that leaves stains on your fingers and <laughs> come out smelling like. Well, never mind. Sorry, I'm. I'm regressing back to the previous days of film. No, I never yeah. shot film in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's not I, me. I can, I can date myself. I, um, I that was always the the best part coming out of the darkroom after a few hours and yeah. then just grabbing a bite, and realizing your fingers were just coated, coated in chemicals, and you just weren't that hungry anymore. Exactly. It's like, oh man, I just put that all over my burger. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to eat that anymore. <laughs> well, actually, it was kind of interesting that you mentioned about the post-production side and all the technolo technology developments, because one thing that we're seeing a lot of, especially from the folks over at Apple, is that new iPad, and Google's coming out with a tablet, and a lot of devices are even moving towards these portable touchscreen you know, innovations where... Uh, you know, a lot of it is just portable where you're on the go and you're doing things quickly. And I've seen, I think John Knack even did something over on his blog where he was talking about, you know, a possibility of integrating some of the Photoshop or the Lightroom features with portables like the tablets and the iPads and the Google Pads and all that stuff. Do you think there's going to be a space for that kind of thing in, in future development? Is that something that Adobe's looking at? Is that something that, you know... Yeah, of course we're looking at it. I mean, the uh, the community has said pretty loud and clear that, you know, a solution, uh, like a portion of Lightroom, is something they really want on a mobile device like that. You know, if you if you think about it, I mean, what do you want to jam in your camera bag? Do you want to throw in a 15-inch laptop, or do you want to throw in a nice little um, portable solution, you know, when you're out shooting over the course of a weekend, and you can quickly download and review and um, maybe make some, some edits? I think uh, there's a ton of interest in that type of solution. See, now, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just being old school, but I 
I like having a full computer. I like going out in the shoot and maybe dumping it off to like an Epson drive, you know, a storage solution to have a duplicate copy. But I just can't see myself editing images on an on an iPad or a Google Pad or you know any of those. I don't know. It's just me. I like sitting at the desk and doing the import and seeing everything all for the first time after I'm done with the shoot. And I, I get the value of it, but part of me is like, well, I don't know. And it, it's the wave of the future, sure. But then my question is on, you know, a screen that small, where it's like a nine inch screen, how much resolution, you know, how much true editing can you really get done? Well, think about it. Um, you know, I, I worked in some studios in New York where you would basically set up a shot and and throw a Polaroid back on your medium format camera and yeah. uh, get the lighting ready and take a look at that Polaroid and that's uh, that's about as big as your your current mobile phone. Oh, that's case. yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about the medium format backs. Yeah. So you're making decisions based on you know images much much smaller than the current tablet formats. So I I think it uh, there's definitely I don't know, a it, future there. Hmm. Yeah, it's got some room to grow in terms of I think. Uh, uh, hardware horsepower. Right. Um, certainly, the manufacturers are, are still kind of anticipating the, the APIs. Um, I'm not sure if you saw an open letter from Camera Bits to their their community. I did. Camera Bits yeah, creates the photo mechanic <laughs> solution. You know, and and I applaud them for being upfront about it uh, because I'm sure they're hearing the same thing that we are. That's, and yeah. there's too many limitations in the the current API to uh, to achieve what what photographers want. Yeah, and I understand it's the way of the future, and you know it's just the nature of technology and development. Just for me to really do my workflow dedicated on such a device, I'm not sure I'm really ready to go the route. I can see how previews and you know like establishing benchmarks could be useful with something like that, because like you said, it is you know about as big as the medium format. It certainly is better than the LCD screen on the back of your camera. But, you know, I'm not sure I'd want to do a complete photo shoot edit in the field. Now, maybe that's just me. I don't know. But we're digressing way well, too far, so. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, we're just talking about kind of the, the import and ingest and select part of the workflow. Uh, if you think about how much professional photographers spent on their uh, portfolio books mm -hmm. uh, to take around, to, to send out to various magazines and whatnot. Um, that's you know, huge, the, yeah. Yeah, you look at the the value proposition of a of an iPad or you know a really elegant presentation format. Uh, there there's a ton of value there. Yeah, and that actually I am totally on board with and totally agree with that. You know the ability to take your portfolio with you inside something like this is phenomenal. But for me, the the big thing for me is the storage. You know, when you look at these portable devices like the iPad and the Google Pad and, you know, all these tablets that are coming out, they don't have a lot of storage on them. And if you're doing a, a dump from your camera onto something like that, you're going to run out of space pretty quick. They only go up to, what, 32 gigs? And that's like... Well, you know how the pace of that... Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's you the, know, we're, we're only on the first generation of these, these mobile or tablet devices. Right. Uh, so, you know, maybe two years, three years down the road. If you think about it, um, yeah, back when Photoshop was first introduced and yeah, I was trying to configure computers to run those early, early versions, I mean, we were really pushing the limits of what hardware could do. Uh, and you had to really get a custom configured uh, computer just to be able to run Photoshop. Right. Uh, so we're... Yeah. Really the hardware needs to catch up a bit, a little bit, but it always does. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. What is it? It's the, the rule there is it doubles every eighteen months or something like that. Some technology, well, yeah. 
What's that law again? I forget what it's called. Uh, it's, it's Moore's Law. Moore's Law, that's what it was. Yeah, Moore's Law. Redoubles every 18 months. Yeah, so it'll probably get up there eventually. It's exciting times for sure to be in the photo industry, though, to see all these changes. Because the changes that are going on right now are just unprecedented. You know, when you look at the history of photography, and, you know, we talked about working in film days, and they changed the types of film that you worked with, and, you know, development processes didn't change a whole lot other than the type of film that you were outputting to. So to see the kind of changes that we're going through right now is definitely exciting times to be in, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's making it accessible to a lot more photographers, I think. Um, if you look at even some of the stuff that's going on in the consumer uh, camera landscape, you know, there are cameras that will basically take a panorama I just saw by you moving the camera over a field was, of view. and It's like Taylor Swift or something did that on a commercial. Yeah. And I was just like, whoa, actually, that looks kind of cool. Imagine doing that with an SLR. Holy crap. <laughs> That'd be pretty well, phenomenal. Actually, I believe some of the Casio cameras will do that. Oh, really? Uh, the Casio has that. a great line of really high frame rate cameras that are just uh, a ton of fun. And they actually capture DNG natively uh, as a RAW format, which is even better. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the DNG format is a preferred format. That actually brings up a good question: Is Lightroom three going to um, be compatible with the DNG format? Has that been updated for one, the other? Because I know the DNG. For those of you that don't know the DNG, well, maybe we should talk about that for a little bit. Do you have a minute to talk about the DNG uh, format? Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about the DNG because that's an open source format, right? So, open source might not be the right word. It's um... or an open format, I should say. Openly documented format. Okay, uh, that's but we're a couple different hats. I'm the Lightroom product manager. I'm the Camera Raw plugin product manager, and the DNG product manager, and they all kind of meet in the middle uh, because raw formats are key to Lightroom and Camera Raw. Mm -hmm. The problem is with Lightroom and Camera Raw, we right now support over 300 proprietary formats, and the problem with proprietary formats is that uh, sure we can dig into the bits and maybe figure out how they're written, uh, but there's no guarantee they won't change over time. Right. Uh, and, and they usually no do. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, um, you know, the word perfect format uh, is a proprietary <sighs> document format. And I actually have hundreds of papers and essays written in word perfect that I would really like to open. But, I, you know, it's a proprietary format. So one needs to license that from, from, uh, from that company. So, you know, what happens is if you look at the, the more openly documented formats, the ones that are standardized like TIFF, um, the JPEG format. DNG, uh, right. Yet no one has any problems understanding how those files are written and, and how, getting access to, to be able to read and, and write those types of files. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Um, and another example would be um, uh, the Kodak Photo CD format. Yeah, oh, my God. I, <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple just, of those I can't get to anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, they, uh, Kodak just completely end of life to that format. It's the phrase we use, and won't support it anymore and won't give anyone a license to support it. So uh, it's. Uh, Which was kind of frustrating. I, I know that was a big issue when, if, when they finally did that end of life on it because it's like, well, basically you're saying we can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And no one would have thought Kodak would, would ever be in that position. So what, what DNG does is it oh, takes sorry. you know this, this uh, proprietary concept. Uh, and, and rearranges all the information in those proprietary files into a commonly, you know, documented uh, format. So the, one way I think about explaining it is uh, if you pick a book up off a shelf, you know where the table of contents is going to be, you know where the index is going to be, and you know where the first chapter is going to begin. Right. 
uh, with with the raw file formats now, uh, the proprietary formats, it's like they're deciding where to put the index or the table of contents right. in each um, uh, in each book differently, uh, which doesn't make any sense. It's not like each book requires some exotic method of organizing <laughs> that same information. Well, uh, well, you know, it's proprietary, so <laughs> they got to change it. The way I've always explained it to people is it's like a wrapper. I, I don't know if that would be an accurate description or not as well. Just say that well, like, it wrapper it enca encapsulates everything. Would that be a useful explanation I, too, or? Well, what I what I think that uh, gets around though is the fact that DNG is is a raw file format unto itself, uh, not just a wrapper of proprietary formats. It's it is a, a raw format, and the fact that you oh, can okay. convert those three hundred proprietary formats to a DNG format uh, is a pretty good indication that there's nothing so exotic or proprietary in those files that can't be standardized. Right. Uh, right. So. So yeah, the information's all there. It's just a matter of how it's organized. Yep, it's all the same information. We just put it in a standardized. Uh, so it's interesting because that's how I've often explained Lightroom, where Lightroom is like a content management system for photos, for like all your photos. DNG could be, I guess, on a smaller scale, some kind of management system for all the file types that are out there. It, yeah, and it kind of is a uh, its own little contained management system because you've got the. I never thought of it that way. The sensor data, uh, mm -hmm. that big chunk of information, the raw information, you've got uh, uh, XMP information, all the information about the metadata, the IPTC, your develop settings. Right. Uh, and then also included in a DNG file is a preview, which uh, represents your develop adjustments. So it's kind of like having a little proof print. And so all in this one, uh, this one format, you've got all these essentials for right. for photography workflow. Yeah, and for I actually did a blog post on this a while back. I think right before our last conversation, that talked about the DNG format and how to incorporate that into your photography workflow. So for those of you that are interested in learning more about DNG and seeing how to incorporate it in that, I've got a couple of suggestions that I can link back to in the show notes. So it's definitely a format that's worth considering because it will be an open format that is going to be there pretty much indefinitely because I think you even mentioned last time that you looked into making that a standard within like one of those ISO standard things or something like that. Has that right? There, there's currently a uh, an ISO standard for what's called TIFF EP. Um, okay. And we've submitted DNG to ISO for consideration as kind of a, the next generation of that format. So. Oh, okay. Is that um, still underway at this point or? Yeah, it's we're not allowed to say anything once we oh, submit, sure. uh, except that we submitted. But uh, yeah, that's that's we, still uh, we still submitted. We, <laughs> so <laughs> Adobe has submitted. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about that I've gotten a couple questions on are people asking about these lens profiles, which is it is one of these, I guess, big features, one of the one of the glamour type features that's available in Lightroom three, where you can actually have. Well, that's how I'll let you explain the. Um, lens profile system because I was actually having a little trouble explaining it because I'm still trying to get up to speed a little bit on it myself. The way I understood it was it corrects lens distortions or I don't why don't you go into right. more detail on that? So uh lenses, no matter how good or uh you know a lens is it, it typically has uh lenses. three uh three major types of, of uh distortion. Uh one is, is barrel or pin cushion distortion. Mm -hmm. Uh and we call it geometric distortion. Another is chromatic aberration, which is you know when you zoom in at 100 or 200 percent, you can see some purple fringing. 
Uh, and the other is vignetting when you get, you know, darkness fall off in the corners. Right. Uh, so those three three issues, I mean, they're, they're natural characteristics of a lens, and they, they change depending on which lens you're using. And uh, that's just and so, physics, right? Isn't that just the physics yep. of how like, you can't avoid all of them all the time? Right. I mean, you could... Uh, I guess you could you, you could keep trying to build a perfect lens, um, but then people want a zoom lens and they want a fast lens. Mm. They you know they want f one four and they want you know they want that to, you know <laughs> they want everything and they don't want to spend too much money and it can't be that heavy. Uh, so you know we we've made these compromises in, in lens design, right. not Adobe, uh, uh, to provide the best value. So what we've done with the lens profiles is said, well, how about we give you a profile that's aware of all those characteristics right and okay, can then automatically sense. correct for them reverse out those those effects uh, straighten the, the lines in a an image that that's has barrel or pincushion distortion uh you know really automatically remove the vignetting effect from the edges of the image these are tools you could have done uh, previously with manual controls uh, but what we've done is wrapped everything into a profile that's aware of all the metadata of a lens, what's, what camera it was shot with, uh, what gotcha. the focus distance was, what the aperture was. So we have uh, all this knowledge in the metadata, and then we can use the profile to automatically apply just the right amount of correction. Cool. So, and you still, but you still can do the manual adjustments, though, right? Because I remember when I was doing the uh, tutorial over on the Camera Dojo site for that, and I was I was playing around with it first to make sure I. Had got it conceptually I noticed that you it looked like you could do manual adjustments from that grid that came up uh, absolutely so you can do you can apply a profile and then you can either turn up or turn down the volume of each parameter so if you think you okay. need more chromatic aberration correction you can just turn that volume slider up or you can go to the manual tab and actually apply manual uh, geometric distortion correction manual chromatic aberration correction or manual vignette correction cool uh, one of the other cool things is then we've we've also gotten that manual tab the ability to do uh, horizontal and vertical perspective transforms which is great if you're kind of shooting up at a building and you nice. just want to normalize it a little bit right that's very cool and I guess my question with regard to that because in building these profiles you had to get a certain amount of buy-in from some of the camera vendors like I noticed there were some sigmas in there there were some Nikons there were some Canons so you probably I'm not sure I'm guessing here but I'm guessing that you probably had got like a library of 20 of, of each lens type and figured out you know what the average amount of distortion was or average amount of chromatic aberration was across multiple lenses and then built a profile out of that. Is that close to how you guys developed that library? So, uh, there, there's a couple different ways we, we went about creating profiles. And you'll take this from another tank. There's a couple different ways photographers can get profiles for okay. their lenses. Okay. Um, the, the first way is, is the Adobe provided profiles. So we, we've profiled a number of Nikon and Canon lenses uh, and, and Sigma, right? Isn't Sigma in there too? Well, that's a different category. Uh, oh. We'll talk about that in just a second. So oh, we, sorry. We've, we've profiled these lenses, and we'll, we'll keep on cranking on that list. Um, but we can't profile every lens on the market. Uh, you right. know, if we had infinite amount of time, we, we might get there. But uh, the second way a photographer can get a profile is to download the Lens Profile Creator Utility, right. which allows you to print out a test chart, and then you shoot the chart uh, uh, at different settings and then pull those images back into uh, the software and it will automatically generate a profile based on that information. So, Oh, so the lens creator pushes the profile to Lightroom? Yes. Oh, uh, it'll be viewable by Lightroom or the camera plugin. So, so if you, okay, so I guess just one question I had real quick then, if you 
were not able to get a successful profile creation in Lens Creator, you're not going to be able to see anything inside of Lightroom because that does the push for you. Correct. When okay. you when you generate the profile, it'll drop it on the it right. It knows. Side. Okay. So I'm sorry. So go ahead. Continue. So there, there, that's two ways. We we're providing profiles. Uh, we're giving a tool to allow photographers to create their own profiles. If you want to profile your point and shoot camera or your uh, your mobile phone camera, mm -hmm. uh, and then the third way is working with directly with manufacturers, uh, and that's where Sigma comes in. So basically, gotcha. uh, giving them an understanding of the specification for uh, for these lens profiles, and they can use their inherent knowledge of uh, their lens design and their lens characteristics uh, to create the profiles. Uh, so that that's a great solution. I'm looking forward to seeing other Canon manufacturers get on board with that uh, that kind of solution. So if they uh, are providing additional profiles to Adobe based mm -hmm. on their library or arsenal of lenses, how would those be delivered? Would that be done through dot updates? Like now, those are installed uh, natively with the application. Right. So if, if, like, say, for example, Sigma came out with three more lens profiles for Adobe to incorporate into Lightroom, would those then from Lightroom be distributed via the dot releases that come out down the road? Because right now there's yes. only... Okay. Okay, so that part is done through the dot releases. And I, I got to say, I because I was trying to do the lens profile creation, and it's, it's pretty exacting. For those of you that are, are interested in doing this because you've got a specific lens that is not in the library or that you know has some CA or some vignette or some uh, pincushion distortion or anything like that, You and creating your own, you're more than welcome to do that, but you have to have things pretty well down, because I was reading the specs on it, you have to have like, like at least two lights, the the grid can't be more than 50% of the screen size or something like that, and just all these different criteria go into creating these pictures that you then that the lens profile creator then analyzes for you to determine how much distortion to correct for. So it's it's not something for the lighthearted or for the occasional uh, shooter to try because you do have to be pretty exact in how you set up and light and, and capture these shots to go into the profile creator. So that's just a little um, tidbit that I experienced from trying to do a, uh, a profile. I think that was for the Sigma 70mm macro because that wasn't in the library, and I thought that might be a good exercise. And it's challenging. It's, 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 it's a challenging set of conditions to set up from a photography perspective. So I'm looking forward to getting that down. Um, we had a couple listener... Do you have time for a couple listener yeah, questions absolutely. on the show? I was trying to find those in the show notes here. I think... Oh, here was the big one. The big one that I saw from one of the listeners was... Um, or reading audience, I guess I should say, because this came in from Twitter, was uh, the PDF format. Someone had asked um, about the fact that Lightroom can export to PDF. Well, you know, it has been for a while now, but you can't import PDFs into the whole content management system. And my answer was, well, it's not meant to be a file management system. It's meant as a photography management system. But I figured I'd defer the question to you, so maybe you might be able to provide some more insight on why you know PDFs are structured the way they are in Lightroom, where you can export but not import or manage that way. Well, it is for the reason that you said. Uh, you know, one of the issues we would face if we started addressing non-photographic file formats from an asset management perspective is uh, it would it would weigh down the application. It would impact performance. Uh, you know, I think Br Bridge is the workhorse of the creative suite. And uh, that's where I pointed into. Yeah, and and that will support all diff the all the formats supported by uh, Creative Suite applications. So, uh, I think it's um, 
Uh, I think we want to keep nice and lean and mean, uh, and that's one of the reasons why Lightroom isn't part of the Creative Suite because uh, we can we can have this razor focus on photography. Right, right, and and the the ability to to import and and just manage video, but not necessarily edit video, because that was the big question they were asking us. Well, you know, how come you can import videos? Because that's not a photograph; that's a video. It's a different format. And the answer that I gave, and I don't know if you want to add to that, but the answer that I gave was you can manage the file because it has characteristics of, photog of, of photographs, but you can't edit that. You can't make any changes. So all you can do is preview it and play it. And it exactly. Uh, you know, and we may see that change going forward in the future. Uh, I think... Uh, video as a format for photographers is is growing, uh, certainly growing in availability and, and, and growing in importance. So, um, hmm. you know, that's an area we'll, we'll keep looking at. I mean, right. we didn't address it before Lightroom 3 because uh, when Lightroom 2 was introduced, there just weren't that many uh, cameras that supported DS, uh, video capture. I think there were two. Yep. Yeah, four years ago there were two, and now there's like 20. So <laughs> it's definitely a changing landscape, no pun intended, in the photography industry. Well, Tom, thank you very much for stopping and talking to us here on the show today. We appreciate you taking the time and answering some listener questions. And, yeah, okay, I kind of usurped it and asked one of my own personal questions about the lens profile, but I guess it kind of goes with the territory, right? Quite all right, <laughs> Well, thanks for stopping in. Oh, and... um. The other understanding I had was the uh, contest that we had last year for Lightroom 2 was going to be revisited this year again as well. Is that was that a did I read that right from uh, contacting offline when we were offline? Uh, uh, sure. I did, I'm, I, I'm always in favor of contests. So I didn't know uh, if, I didn't know if that was going to happen again or not. I I probably should have checked my show notes before asking that. But are we doing another contest giveaway this year? Or is that the... Uh, you know, I don't know off the top of my head. Um... We'll get back to you on that, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get back to you on that. I'm not sure that was really addressed in the show notes, but it's conceivable that we could have another uh, Lightroom giveaway that's going to give away a copy of Lightroom 3, because that's the current version that just came out. And if that does happen, that'll be coming up hopefully in July. So uh, we'll coordinate offline and see if that's going to happen, and I'll do a follow-up hopefully later this week on the blog uh, in some show notes there. And... I guess just again, Tom, thanks for coming on the show. It's always fun to talk to you. My pleasure. All right, we'll talk to you later. Thanks. photography thank you once again also to tom hogarty for stopping in and talk to us here on the show it was great to hear about lightroom 3 uh some of the new features some of the trending tendencies that we may see in future iterations a lot of good information there um just one kind of final thought i did hear back from the folks over at adobe and they are going to be sponsoring another giveaway so some lucky listener in july will be going home with a copy of photoshop lightroom 3.0 Oh, uh, more details to come on that as we get closer to July. But don't forget, June giveaway is still underway. You can win two Lexar Pro 300X um, flashcards. These are 4 gig flashcards. They're UDMA ready, 
and they are very fast uh, worth 140 bucks retail I did a review on this last week on the blog so if you want to hear more about it or see more about it uh, stop into that post I'll throw a link to that up in the show notes as well but there's still some great giveaways going on don't forget though there is the Lightroom 3 giveaway coming up in July so thank you to the folks at Adobe for sponsoring that coming up next in the show there are three questions that I'd like to answer for this week's show the first one comes to us from Karen over in Sioux Falls Karen writes in and says I keep keep hearing about all these stabilization technologies. Can you help clarify the difference between optical image and sensor image stabilization? That really is a great question. I get that a lot actually and I uh, haven't really addressed it here on the show so I figured this would be a good time to take advantage of the time to do so. Optical image refers to lens stabilization and sensor image stabilization refers to camera-based stabilization. Nikon and Canon are probably the best known for the the optical uh, uh, stabilization te technology basically what they do is they have a floating lens uh, in, or a floating element I should say inside your lens and that will float a little to the left or a little to the right to adjust for your, sh your shake as you are hand holding your camera it, and that's called pitch and yaw for those of you that are interested there is also a um, an upward and downward shake that is present that doesn't really is not addressed really as much as it is as one would think in uh, image stabilization lenses some of the newer ones do address that uh, that I've seen from Canon where they offer correction methods on uh, both planes of the uh, optical axis but that's basically what the difference is between optical image and sensor image stabilization the ones that use sensor based stabilization uh, include Konica, Minolta uh, Pentax and Sony, they've got this Steadicam technology. Uh, you can see this in their uh, K10D, their K20D, what was it, the K7, K100, and K200 uh, over at Pentax are the precise angular ones that use that. I think Olympus is doing that too. So um, there are a couple that uh, offer uh, stabilization from each perspective. What the advantages are of each lens based stabilization. Uh, is actually best served if you're hand-holding. Well, I guess they're both best served if you're hand-holding. But well, I guess one of the main disadvantages, let me go about this from a different perspective, the biggest disadvantage to lens-based stabilization is the price tag that comes with it because you have to get it for each lens that you want to shoot handheld with. And uh, number two, not all the lenses for Canon and Nikon are, uh, have, or not all of them have built-in image stabilization. So it can be uh, somewhat pricey to keep all your lenses in that IS category or that VR category. IS is image stabilization, Nikon calls it VR or vibration reduction. Uh, one of the disadvantages to sensor-based or camera-based stabilization is that the image that's projected onto the viewfinder is not stabilized. So this isn't really as much of an issue if you have an electronic viewfinder, but if you have an actual viewfinder, that could still result in a little bit of blur because that image is not going to be stabilized when it hits the sensor. So even though the sensor can shift for it and adjust for it to a certain degree, it's still not going to be 100% accurate. So that is a disadvantage. The advantage of working with uh, camera-based stabilization is that because it's in camera it will work with any lens that attaches to it so it's a lower cost perspective to uh, consider um, basically it means you can buy a lower quality a, a lower 
cost lenses like the Tamron and some Sigma and still have stabilized image uh, technology because you don't need the lens to have it. It's built into the camera. The downside is that you may not have as many lens options uh, simply because they make a more limited line for these cameras because like I said it's only in the Konica Minolta, the Pentax and Olympus that carry them. They just don't have as extensive a line as Nikon and Canon do of their lenses so that's the downside there. Great question Karen. Thank you very much. Our second question comes in to us from oh I forgot your name I didn't write your name down the second question comes in from one of the listening members of the audience out there or reading members of the audience that wrote in via email asking what the term skunk lighting means I guess they read this in a forum somewhere and they weren't exactly sure skunk lighting refers it's a, actually this, they don't hear this a lot skunk lighting refers to a lighting technique or style where you'll have two lights one light on each side of you one at so if you're looking at yourself as the six o'clock position of a clock then you would have one light at three o'clock and one light at nine o'clock and they'll be flashing towards each other putting your subject in the middle and the reason why it's called skunk lighting is because there will be a little stripe that goes down the center it can be an interesting effect um, they call it skunk lighting because of that stripe it's an interesting effect I've seen it used to a limited degree but it, it is a term that some people may not be familiar with, so that was a good question. Figured I would include that in the show. Our last question comes to us from Walter. Walter did not give his location. I'm not sure where he wrote in from, but he wrote in with a question about his tablet. He said his tablet has stopped working, and if I had any ideas I could share, that would be great. Uh, Walter, thanks for the email. Um, kind of hard to troubleshoot without getting a little feedback from you. Uh, I guess the first thing I would say is to check for hardware and software changes. Uh, did you upgrade your operating system? Did you just upgrade to Vista or Windows 7? Or did you add something to your computer recently? Sometimes when you start, a lot of these USB devices use power. And if you've got too many USB devices um, plugged into your computer, because they're a power drain, your power supply may not have enough to really make everything work. So you could be overpowering uh, your computer from all these different USB ports that are demanding energy from you. So I'd say number one, check for hardware changes, see if you've had anything lately. Uh, a couple things that are big drains on power I know are uh, things like a Drobo, like a network carrier storage that's done via USB, or if you've got a keyboard mouse and a, a set that plugs in via USB and you've got speakers and you've got external drives and all these different things that can plug in there once you start plugging enough of these in you really can drain that so check to see if you've added something else if you've got a card reader constantly plugged in or if you've got a USB hub plugged in that could be draining it as well so you might want to try having fewer things plugged in um, another thing you may want to check is actually uh, looking at your uh, Windows setup. I'm assuming, I'm assuming you're running Windows here, which is probably a dangerous assumption, but if you're running Windows uh, Vista, I know that there's some tools built into Vista that override your tablet functions. Uh, there's a couple places you can go to check that. A friend of the blog, uh, Fergs, did a review on this a while back. I think it was last year. I'll, I'll go back and find her post where she did a review on Wacom tablets, and she talked about this, which is how I knew about it and uh, I'll throw a link to that in the show notes where she talks about how to turn these features off inside of Windows. It's something in the control panel with uh, 
uh, input devices or pen devices or something like that and then there's check boxes that you have to uncheck I'll get a link to her, that specific blog post that she did and throw that up in the show notes uh, so that could be a second way that um, you could be running into problems is if you're running Vista or Windows 7 that may have some tablet features that are overriding the features on your Wacom that you may not be aware of so if you just did an OS update that could be something that's interfering with uh, your tablet operating correctly and last but not least I would also suggest trying another USB port uh, if you don't have a lot of stuff plugged in it could be the one that you're plugged into is too far downstream from the computer for example I've got my computer plugged into one monitor it's got a power port for the USB so two side USBs can work off of that and I have that running I have another USB running from there to power a second monitor so it's going downstream too and then anything that I plug in after that needs to be getting supplemental power so I've got an, a, a Western Digital eBook that plugs in there and a printer that plugs in there but because both of those have AC power sources themselves where they don't rely on the USB for power it's just data connection then those are fine but I've noticed if I plug something in that kind of needs power from it like my camera if I'm doing tethered shooting or if I needed to plug a, a non-power based uh, portable drive like my Western Digital Passport drive that I use with my laptop if I need to plug that in for any reason that can cause problems as well if it needs power from that port just because it's so far downstream and it could be a USB port went bad sometimes these will go bad or burn out uh, depending if you hit them a lot with contacts sometimes they can short out so I would say try another USB port see if you can get it working from there uh, thank you to Walter Karen and third person whoever you were to ask about skunk lighting I forget your name. I didn't write it down. My apologies. But thank you to all three of you for writing in. These really were great questions. Thank you also to Tom Hogarty for stopping in to talk to us here on the show. And thank you to all the listeners and readers out there. It really is you that drives everything we do here at Learning Digital Photography and over on the blog. All the show notes will be over on the blog. You'll also notice this week that the blog has gotten a facelift. There's a new look and feel, a lot of new features, a lot of uh, Great new content, ways to deliver content to you have been added. Uh, there's a direct link to the latest contest. There's photo galleries where you can check out some of my latest photos. And there's links to workshops where you can actually sign up for workshops and some articles and all that kind of fun stuff as well. So it's a new look and feel. Stop over to the blog and let me know what you think about that. Uh, just trying to make everything better as we deliver this out to you guys on a regular basis. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time at Learning Digital Photography. Happy shooting. Thank <laughs> you.